Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with the question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow first and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was, with the, it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither, neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So, um, Todd and Kathy, I'm glad you're here this morning. I really am. Everybody processes uh, trauma, tragedy in different ways, and there's freedom in that. But there's something beautiful about your being in a faith community with us this morning to process this together. And it's totally appropriate to cry. And it's totally appropriate to hug these folks who have had a tremendous loss. And in that, all of that process, um, God comes through and his promises come through. So um, you're, it, it's just, this is what it means to be in a faith community together. And um, yeah. So we are in uh, the third of five different attempts to uh, from people who are these little groups that are the enemies of Jesus to box him in or expose him as a fraud. And uh, each time we've seen how that works, it's kind of like he's, he's in the middle of the boxing ring and another group comes in and they're going to try to knock him out. And they are the ones who get the bloody nose. So it's kind of funny how we're seeing this pattern and we're going to see it uh, again next week and the week after that. Uh, they are threatened. Uh, Jesus is a threatening person, in a sense. Uh, they were threatened. Uh, I mean, our own, you know, how we define life is threatened. But they were threatened because they had personal power involved, and they had they had the structures of uh, ways they did things and things they believed that Jesus was threatening. And particularly, they were threatened, or they felt the nation was threatened uh, because of some of the things that Jesus was saying and doing. And they were the caretakers of the nation. And this is the area, I've had this up here every week, this is Herod's temple. It's a model, and the reason it's a model is because the temple of Herod, grand as it was, was destroyed in 70 AD, roughly 40 years after the events that we're looking at. And that just kind of verifies what I'm saying, is that that Jesus was a threat because of what Rome could do to this nation, and that's what Rome did 40 years later. They tore down that temple. Not because of what Jesus did, by the way, but because the the Jews were being kind of rebellious to the Romans at that point, and that's a whole other story, and uh, history books will tell you about that. But uh, the, the events, these challenges to Jesus are coming in this area here on Tuesday or Wednesday. We're not exactly sure during the week of what we call Holy Week or Passion Week, or Easter week now, we call it. So uh, I put that up there for you. And um, 
the the question of the afterlife um, is is one that Jesus is going to address today, and it's one that has uh, in in our day has many you know people asking about it all throughout history. Different religions have taken different uh, approaches to it, and we have books and movies today that are based on near death experiences. But just to point out what somebody has said, and that is that a near death experience isn't exactly the same as a death experience, and that that's really hard to get that that um, that report from the other side. So I, I wanted to use a little history on that to illustrate. I'm a, I'm a history buff, and World War One is a uh, hundred years ago right now. There's, I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, the centennial. There's all these centennial. If we were in Europe, we would understand this better. Uh, these centennial markings of what was going on during World War One. One of the things that happened during World War One is that. Well, 17 million, mostly young men, were killed from these, quote, Christian nations. And these Christian nations all believe that God was on their side. And it's just a, hor- it's a horrible thing, what happened there. It, it, it tells us a lot about humanity, the, the worst. And um, the, the men, uh, think of this. Parents wanted to know what happened to their son. And so they cultural convergence here but they sought out spiritualists or seances if you this is the era there was kind of a fad or a craze during those years of seances and they'd sit around a table and things would supposedly happen obviously there were charlatans and frauds but um the reason they didn't go to church like was because the church had become well, whatever, but not alive to them anymore. And one of the things that churches did that made it really hard was the church said to each nation, to each people group, God is on our side. You're going to win. And when you just chew up millions and millions of young men's lives, it, you, you question God in that sense, and you certainly question the church. And so they turned to these spiritual mediums, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who you might know from the uh, Sherlock Holmes, was someone who bought into all that, and there were others, and there were many critics as well. But I just wanted you to know that, and this is a letter that was written, um, it was found in a newspaper, but it was, Mothers and friends of fallen soldiers resorting to table wrapping, creakings, automatic writings through the medium of the planchette, the Ouija, the heliograph, etc., in the hope of once more communicating with their loved ones. And you can see why they would want to. Now, it's confusing here, and Todd and Kathy, my, my prayer is that you will hear Jesus this morning, and all of us will hear Jesus this morning in a way that is more clear than we've ever heard him before. And he speaks to the resurrection. And he speaks with clarity. And he speaks with authority. He speaks as someone who knows what he's talking about. And it's not just a doctrine. It's personal to him. We're on Tuesday or Wednesday, two or three days before he is going to die. And four or five days before he is going to be. There's a whole new thing that's going to happen in planet Earth called the resurrection. So, there we go. Let's, let's take a, a look at this. And we're going to look at the, again at the trap in these five verses that the Sadducees set for Jesus, and then Jesus' rebuke, and then we'll close with a short reflection. Um, here's the trap. And when the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question... Um, so let's just look at the Sadducees for a second... They came to Jesus. 
um, and they say there is no resurrection. So who are these guys? They, uh, I don't know how to, if I'm totally accurate, because there's speculation, there's, there's not everybody agrees on who they were, but here's, I'm going to give you a composite sketch of what I've, different things I've read. They would be a, a very small group in Jerusalem, kind of the cultural elite, and uh, they would have been very well educated. So think, if you want to put it into our city, and think of somebody from the East Coast, Harvard, Yale, uh, that kind of thing, and th- they, they consider themselves maybe a little bit higher in terms of what they understand about life than the despicables, I don't know, whatever. I just shouldn't have said that. But, but, but the, the common folk. And so th- th- there's an elitist mentality that goes with them. And then uh, here's some of what they believe. That the first five books of the Bible uh, are, are that's it. There's no there's no other scripture that relates to the the, uh, the Old Testament that we have is 39 books, and they would say no, just the five books of Moses. So it's very different. And the Pharisees, we're going to contrast that. The Pharisees would uh, buy into the whole Old Testament. I told you last week that Jesus is much closer to the Pharisees, even though they always come across as his enemy, and they are, but he's always much closer to the Pharisees than the Sadducees. And um, you're, you're getting a little bit of, of as you, you study this stuff, you kind of realize that these are not great people. They were more liberal in their interpretations uh, of, of what they had in the scriptures. So you might call them, if, if you want to, if, if you're a conservative, oh, they're the liberals. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. The miracles, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in a Messiah. There's no angels or demons, and there's no resurrection from the dead. And this is the issue that is the critical issue in the first century and which they are arguing with Jesus over, or at least with the Pharisees over. And you'll see that not just here, but in other places as well. So that gives you an idea of these folks. They believe that the only afterlife is what your family and friends remember of you. So that's different than what we would call a resurrection or an afterlife. So I, just, to, just to get you get us clear on that, because we can fall into, uh, um, I think, some deceit there, is that uh, I remember my dad. I think about my dad every day. He died about 10 years ago. I mean, every day. And, I, and I'm guessing that if you're in that same place, that's true of you too. And then I think of my grandpa grandfather, his father, oh, maybe, you know, once in a while, and I remember him fondly. But beyond that, my grandfather's father, heck, I wouldn't know him if, you know, I think there's a picture somewhere, but I don't ever think of him, hardly, you know. Do you see what I'm saying here? The afterlife can get pretty short if you define it that way. And then I know my kids think about me all the time, and they think great thoughts, I'm sure. <laughs> and, and then you run it the other way, and you realize that in a hundred years, who is going to remember me? Now, you have influence in that you can, you can affect people today, and then that goes on. But, but in terms of being remembered, and, and most people who are remembered in history are remembered as, as flawed in some way. And I don't know if I want to be remembered that way. So um, the, there's that whole, that whole deal. But uh, if the afterlife, if it's, if it's simply a matter of extinction, then that's all you have is that view. Um, in the Old Testament, this is a little bit of just to give you a little background. 
as you look at the first five books of the Bible and then you go through the Bible, there's this growing sense of the afterlife being something bigger than just what we talked about. Because in the, in the beginning, in the Old Testament, it is very much earthbound. But as you go through, as, as the, it's written over a thousand years, and, and the more time you have, there's these little hints that it's bigger and there's something really, really out there. So that by the time Jesus comes in the first century, most people, including the Pharisees, believed in something called the resurrection. Now, it's going to look different than what Jesus actually does. But they believed in some kind of resurrection from the dead. And then the, Pharise- or the Sadducees, obviously, uh, are, are questioning that. Now, I have a kind of a cynical theory here. <laughs> you ready for that? Um, here it is. People in power, this isn't just me, but people in power tend to get earthbound. Because... They have power, and who wants to change it? So they focus on what they have. And we consider, our, look, you know, we would be considered people in power by many people throughout history, particularly if we're Caucasian and we have a lot of money or whatever, that, that we think so much about this life that we lose our taste for the afterlife. And that fits with the Sadducees. That, and I'm just throwing this out as a maybe, but maybe that's that because they had so much power that they were the ones in control politically of that situation. Why bother thinking about what's beyond? Now, here's, here's the great illustration that many have picked up on. American slavery, if you look at the American slaves and the Negro spirituals that come out of that experience, I'm telling you, folks, it is so good for the soul to sing those songs. Good for your soul. Good for my soul. It gives you... These people, I mean, they don't want anything. The the sooner we get there, the better. There's nothing good about this life. Master this, master that. And they long for heaven. They can taste it. They are waiting for it, praying for it, hoping for it every day. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. That's the longing of the heart for something better. The other side of the Jordan, that promised land, and these, these great uh, spirituals that are part of the gift of faith from that hard place. So anyway, there you go. They come with a question or a riddle for Jesus. It's a trap again and uh, they they set up it's kind of a ridiculous scenario it's a satire because they don't believe in the resurrection but they ask Jesus a question a hypothetical question of well what if to simply to expose him to drive a wedge so that he'll have to give an answer that will make him appear one way or the other so here it is, real quickly. It's, it's really, the whole thing is really not about marriage, but it's about resurrection, so I'll cover this part really quick. In the Old Testament, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says that if a wife loses her husband and she has no children, therefore, the idea is, God wants to care for that widow. And the way you do that is you get his brother to then 
come and take her as his wife, and hopefully they will have children. But they paint, they paint this scenario where uh, this happened seven different times, brother after brother. You can, I'm not sure if I want to be one of the brothers at this point after the third or fourth, right? You know? but, and then they all die, and then she dies. And uh, so the question is then, whose wife, whose wife is she in the resurrection, in the afterlife, which they don't believe in? So that you get the, the sense of it here that this is really kind of a, uh, a, a ridiculous kind of question it, that they, don't, they themselves don't really buy into it, but they're trying to uh, get at Jesus. For those of you who are sports fans, and I see a Mariner uniform right over here, this would be uh, like Ken Griffey Jr. if he played for seven different teams, and then who gets, who's gonna, whose uniform is he going to wear in the Hall of Fame? Some Mariners, we know that. But at any rate, if that helps you. Some of you understand baseball better than marriage, so, you know. <laughs> not to your credit. Not to your credit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've, got, we've got this thing going on. And then the wedge is, here's, let, let me try to explain the wedge. Because it really is, that's what they're after, is to drive a wedge. So Jesus has to. So will you laugh with the Sadducees at this ridiculous scenario and just say, oh, that's ridiculous, then of course there's no resurrection. There can't be, because there's no answer to the question that, you know, whose wife would she be? I mean, how do you, how do you divide her up seven ways? And how, what do you, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Or will he laugh at them? So if he laughs with them, he becomes uh, basically an enemy of the people because the people believe in the resurrection. And he becomes, he's already an enemy of the Pharisees, they believe that, but he, he loses his status with the people. But if he laughs at them, then he is a, a country bumpkin from Nazareth, which is one of the things that he's already got to live with. Whatever good came out of Nazareth, if you remember that quote from the Bible. So it's kind of like, you can't win, you know. And uh, it's interesting in all these cases, if you, if you say that the Sadducees are the liberals and the Pharisees are the conservatives, and that would be the closest thing that would parallel to our way of talking about that. Uh, the, the Pharisees were into purity laws and really strict, and the, other, uh, the Sadducees were more liberal and just kind of go with the flow. But if you, if you take that characterization, then it's, like, it's almost like today with, with Jesus. The, the liberals are trying to sniff out and smell whether this person is conservative or not. And the conservatives are trying to smell, is this really a liberal? You see how it works? You know, you know you've played that game. And once again, Jesus defies human categories. I've tried. I've, I've set this up for you. I did it last week when we were talking more about politics. But and the the, the the thing that we're here for is to cultivate the sweet smell of our Savior, and it transcends those categories. And if you get stuck on that thing, you'll miss the real Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's my concern. Okay, you've heard it. So uh, these folks are 
um, trying to, to pin him down. And um, then we get the rebuke. Jesus replied, and it's in a question here, but in Matthew's account of this, it, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what Matthew says, and I'm paraphrasing. You guys are wrong. It's very strong, the word error, even here, but it's a question, and it doesn't sound as strong. So Jesus says, you are absolutely wrong. Is it okay for somebody to say that these days, to claim absolute truth? I mean, you are just out to lunch wrong on this point. Uh, My wife Patty and I were talking this week. We have friends who live in, get this, Niceville, Florida. (laughs) There is a place called Niceville. You want to move there? Go there? uh, Yeah, yeah. I don't even know where it is. And I wonder how it got its name. But Jesus is not from Niceville. You are wrong! (laughs) You know, in their face, you're wrong. And uh, this is how he he deals with the trap. And he is going to straighten them out. And he says, he gives them two reasons why they're wrong. The first is that they don't understand Scripture. Well, it's really, they're, they're combined. You don't understand Scripture, and you don't understand the power of God revealed there. But first he has to deal with... Uh, the marriage thing. And so he just touches on that, and he says that, don't you know that in the resurrection, in the afterlife, there will be no more marriage? That you'll be like the angels. And that has implications for uh, gender and obviously sexuality. But don't, don't think of it that way. You're thinking of it wrong. You know, when <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about this, it, this is a bad joke, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, my, it, it really is a sad joke, is what it is. But my great uncle and my great aunt, when I was, I just barely remember them. They lived in, in Roseburg, Oregon. And we would, when I was a little kid, we'd go down there. And this is what my parents told me, because I, I picked up on something that was kind of weird when I went in their house. The last 20 years of their marriage, they didn't speak a word to each other. This is in the day before no-fault divorce and all that. And it wasn't that uncommon. So my joke is that they would be very glad to hear what Jesus has to say, that there is no marriage in the afterlife, that if there was, it would be hell, right? (laughs) It's a sad joke, I know. (laughs) So Jesus says that's, that's not the case. You're wrong in thinking about marriage that way. And then he talks about Scripture and the power of God, and he goes to the Scripture that they believe in. He goes, he's going to use that part of Scripture that they actually say is the Word of God, which would be the first five books of the Bible, which is where you find the book of Exodus, which in chapter 3, verse 6, is where you find a burning bush. And God speaking out of that burning bush got Moses' attention, got him over there, God speaks, and what does God say? I am the God. I am the God, not I was the God. This is really important. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From roughly 500 years earlier, I am their God. 
What Jesus is saying, this is the power of God. This is scripture, and it reveals the power of God. And what Jesus is saying is that I made promises. Well, let's say, let's say God made promises. Jesus is God, but that, I don't want to make it more complicated than it is. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were alive. And he, he did things. If you know their stories, it's quite a, quite a deal. They were not perfect people. And they were very flawed, but God made promises. He worked with them. He protected them. He redeemed them. He made great promises to them that went beyond their lives. And they did die. But Jesus is saying, God is faithful beyond death. So here's the question. This is the question that Jesus puts flat in our, before us. We have to not blink at it. Who's bigger, God or death? The Sadducees have to make that call, and by the Holy Spirit and the way it works, you have to make that call. Who is bigger, God or death? And don't, don't just give a Sunday school answer. Go deeper. Go deeper. God or death, those are your two choices. See, Jesus puts the wedge in front of them. He's putting the wedge in front of us. God or death? Is death really that big to God? The creator of life, the creator of all things, can he not handle that? And you see, this is Jesus speaking. Two or three days later, he's going to die. God or death? Well, the Pharisees have their view of the resurrection, and they seem to come out smelling good here because they agree with Jesus, right? Oh, they don't have a clue what's going to happen on Sunday. What happens on Sunday, and this is, we're going towards Easter, if you didn't know it, and the leaves will be green by then, I promise, and the sun will be shining warmer, but Easter is all about something that no one ever predicted. They believed in resurrection, but not what happened. So they're in for a surprise, too. Jesus transcends our categories. So, two reflections, really quick. First of all, one of the mistakes that the, we don't want to make the same mistake that the Sadducees made was thinking that heaven, if there was such a thing, and they don't believe there is, but if there was, that it's just a little different than planet Earth. Just tweak it a little bit better, you know, like, be like a long church service or something, right? <laughs> Everybody say, God save us from that, you know. But it, it's something along those lines. And that... Uh, so here, here's, let's use marriage for an example. And, and uh, I, I think I have a great marriage, and it, it, there's companionship and intimacy and blessing and love. And, that, I, you know, and there, I'm sure there's m- great marriages that are... How do, you, how do you measure that stuff? But put it this way, the best marriage on this earth in eternity will look like, as someone said, one night in a bad hotel. I mean it that way. Or if you like fishing, you know, one lousy day fishing is better than five in the office or whatever. But it's the comparison thing here. You're talking about this marriage is a placeholder, the Bible says, for the, the, the marriage where God unites with his people. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate. And just use your imagination, Sadducees. I'm speaking to those guys, not you. But use your imagination and just think what it could be. Go ahead. Dream. 
I'm just think of people that you've lost and just dream of running to them and embracing them and say, oh God, you are alive. You are the God of the living, not the dead. There's hope. May God give you permission to go there. The resurrection. Okay, that's one reflection. And the second one is just this, that Jesus Christ doesn't just teach us about this doctrine called the resurrection. He says to two sisters who have lost their brother in John chapter 11, he says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. It's very personal. And when we think about his life, two or three days before death, four or five days before his resurrection, he has authority to speak. So let's just pray. Hear those words from Jesus to you. Allow them to create that wedge and you can answer it however you want. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Lord, that calls for trust on our part. Because when we look around, we don't see it that way sometimes. We feel pain deeply. And we feel darkness deeply. And we live with death. And we have to deal with stuff on this planet that is just not fun. But you still speak. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. With our hearts, the real us before the real you, Lord, we trust you. We trust your words. We take them in. We make them part of our own DNA. We digest them. We eat them. And we are nourished. We proclaim that you are the resurrection and the life. Amen.